0: This is Storybeat, Storytellers on Storytelling.
1: An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuton.
0: Thanks for joining us on Story Beat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My guest today, Bill Eisler, is President Emeritus of Fred Rogers Productions and a longtime educator and advocate for children. He began his career as a teacher and administrator, and later joined the Pennsylvania Department of Education, where he served as Executive Assistant to the Secretary of Education, Commissioner of Basic Education, and Senior Program Advisor for Early Childhood Education before joining Fred Rogers Productions in 1984. In 2005, he was named the Executive Director of the Fred Rogers Center, a position he held until 2008. During his years at Fred Rogers Productions, Bill helped bring to life lovable characters such as Daniel Tiger. He worked on the iconic TV show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and under Bill's leadership, Fred Rogers Productions produced three PBS Kids hit series, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Peg and Cat, and Odd Squad, which have garnered a combined 17 Daytime Emmy Awards to date. In addition to serving on the board of Fred Rogers Productions, Bill is a member of numerous boards and councils, including 16 years on the board of Pittsburgh Public Schools, serving as president for five years. Bill has received numerous awards, including, in 2017, the prestigious PBS Be More Award for Excellence in Children's Media. And on top of all that, Bill Eisler is currently portrayed by Enrico Colantoni in the feature film A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, starring Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers. So for me, it's a big thrill and a truly wonderful honor to have one of the great men of television, especially children's programming, Bill Eisler, is my guest on Story B today. Bill, welcome to the show.
1: Steve, thank you, and you're very kind for that introduction, but I, you, you know... Um, how excited I was! I mean, I think we have to tell people we literally ran into this, ran into each other in the street, the in the street. strip district, and I couldn't believe it was you. Yeah. Because <laughs> I hadn't seen you for a couple of years. I mean, you you are one impressive human being, oh. and it's great to have you back in the city. Well, the, full time.
0: The kindness is all. Yeah, in I you. know, I know, I know. It's good. <laughs> all right, so let's go back to a little bit of the beginnings. What first got you inspired to work with children, and to well, we'll talk about how you got to children's programming, but you you started off in children's education. I did. How did you get there? What well, I was. I was teaching
1: school, and uh, this was in the late 60s, and I decided to um, go to law school. I quit teaching. I got drafted. When I came back out of the Army, um, I debated on whether to go into law school, the school of social work. And a good friend of mine who was running a human service program in Mon Valley asked if I would come down and consult on children's programming because of my background. He then hired me and convinced me that what I should do is go into child development at Pitt. And I did. And that's where I met Margaret McFarlane, who mm. was Fred Rogers' chief consultant. Right. So, you know, this is just a trajectory that, that was very serendipitous, you know, being at the right place at the right time and meeting the right people.
0: A lot of creative people that have been on this show have said similar things, mm-hmm. that life is this weird chain, this link of chain Absolutely. That, that goes on and on. And it is serendipity to a certain amount. It
1: is. Fred used to call it weaving, weaving the quilt weaving the quilt that's what life was you were really a weaver wow uh you know and it was the threads that 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 held everything together
0: i love that image i mean that's a that's a powerful image it is a powerful because quilts are very frequently many different things right
1: and and i think our lives i mean again look at the two of us i mean i've i've spent most of my time here you know you've been all over the place but a lot long time in la and come back we have been a lot of places and done a lot of things, That's so the quilts right. are pretty colorful.
0: Oh, and when and really you don't appreciate it till you get down the road a little bit, exactly, right? Because when you're in your twenties, there's not much of a quilt there, right? But when you get to you know a little bit older and you've done a little bit of stuff, that quilt gets yeah. to be wow! Look back yeah. at that, yeah. and I try to keep looking forward as I know you right. do too. Right. Yeah. Uh, There's so, a
1: painting in your history on this, you know, I, I'm a good, sure, one, a I'm good sure, one. I'm
0: sure there is. Okay, so so how did you eventually get? I mean, you're, you're doing all this stuff in children's education. How did you eventually get to to Fred Rogers?
1: Well, I met Fred when I was in graduate school, which was in the early '70s, uh, because Margaret McFarland introduced me. We stayed in contact. I went, you know, I was left Pittsburgh, went to Harrisburg. We stayed in contact when Fred would come to Harrisburg or Hershey. Primarily for the Pennsylvania Public Television Network right. or any public television events, we would get together. And at uh, one point, he asked in the early 80s if I would think about coming back to Pittsburgh. And I initially said no, that I really like state government. Um, I love working for Dick thornburg and in, in, in the thornburg administration. I love the things we were doing in education and especially in early childhood education. And I said no. And then the more I thought about it, uh, and the, the person I was directly responsible to, Bob Wilburn, who was Secretary of Education, said, you know, you're going to get one chance in life to work with Fred Rogers, and this is it, so you better Mm -hmm. take it.
0: And I did. That was very, uh, very wise
1: advice. It was great advice. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's advice that uh, if it wasn't for Bob and and him saying that to me, I I don't think I would have come back to Pittsburgh.
0: Uh, Interesting. And so it wasn't just the pull of Mr. Rogers. It was someone saying it to you.
1: Oh, absolutely. And reminding me what an opportunity it could be.
0: In storytelling, a character like that would be called a mentor. Right. Now, this gentleman may not have been your mentor, but he was giving you mentoring advice he at was. that moment.
1: He was. He was a mentor. I mean, still to this day. You know, we're still in good contact together today. So until this so,
0: day. so, did you then have to get some kind Talk about what you did for Fred Rogers all those years. What did you do in the beginning and how did it evolve? Uh,
1: you know, it, it's funny because I always say it was a non-creative part. It was really the administrative part of the yeah. organization. Um, the, the company at the time was called Family Communications because Fred did not want it named after him. He wanted it to be bigger than Fred Rogers. Right. So it was Family Communications. He, uh, he, wanted, he wanted to to have somebody who could deal with the day-to-day administrative responsibilities of running a company and running a media company. And to really bring people in, creative people who could do more. Sure and it was a very creative staff that he had he had really built over the years and we continued to build that staff but my job was really administrative i was purely in the administrative end mm-hmm. of it and leaving the creative to everybody else did you get involved in any of the creative stuff ever yeah i did i mean a lot of the proposal writing when we would come up with ideas and we would be starting new programs or new con- not necessarily television programs that we would do, be doing pra- programs to help People who were working with children in the medical fields, in the child care field, uh, in, in elementary education, you know we did a lot of pretty unique programs over the years did,
0: did, did video you,
1: related I'm,
0: I'm trying to remember you ha- you have producing credits on these shows, don't you
1: um, I, I, I really don't I'm very different about credits it, who I always say who sees the credits? Well, that's true. And the other line that, that somebody gave me years ago was, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't want to take credit. <laughs> and we, you know, Fred and I would exchange that all the time. So, no, I really, my name would appear Places, but I really never went after the credits.
0: Okay, but you were actually behind the scenes. You were behind producing. the scenes, very much so. You were deeply involved. Would you be on set as well? Uh, always, always. Yeah. So you really were essentially minding the mint, as they say, and, yeah. and running the show. Right, but but it was his show, clearly. Th-
1: right, he was really the talent, but we had tremendous producers, and you know, we really had good people in that studio. Okay, so this Top is people. This is
0: studio. what I was trying to get to: is who, who, did, where did you learn that from?
1: Uh, I pretty much learned it by being there. Just doing it. Yeah, just seeing people do it. I mean, I, I, again, I, don't, I would not consider myself a producer and in no way a director, but in watching people mm-hmm. and watching how things are put together. I mean, the producer does everything, and you know, once the door's closed, the director takes over. I mean, you know this field far better than I do. Yeah. And we had very, very talented people, very gifted people.
0: Oh well, that's that's obvious. You, how many episodes did you? There were were over nine hundred. Is that all? Just nine hundred episodes? That's an awesome number of episodes for any series, and for it, clearly, it had to be people that knew what they were doing. Absolutely. Um, All right. So, did you then develop perhaps producing heroes? Anybody that you looked around the world and you said, "I really admire what they're doing. I'm going to emulate or steal from them, perhaps."
1: You know, that's really interesting. I think that. The neighborhood was so unique. That's mm, yeah, true. And Fred was so unique. And it really had grown into a very iconic children's program. Before your children's aboard. programs drew from the neighborhood. Mm-mm. I mean, let me just, if I may, just come a little bit ahead of it, if, if you don't mind. No, if you can not, just not go a little bit ahead. If you take a look at Daniel Tiger's neighborhood, which, is, which was created by Angela Santomero, Angela Santomero created Blues Clues. Okay. For Nickelodeon. Yeah. She grew up with a neighborhood. She had a facilitator working with the animation and, and, and the puppets and the you know she had a, a teenage facilitator, a younger person. But it, there was a lot of similarities between Blue's Clues and Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. Sure. So the what I'm getting at there is that the iconic nature of how Fred created that program and how he appealed directly to children. You have another great creative writer and producer of children's programs, and Angela Santamara, who we worked with in the development of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Right. So when you say, did we steal from anything, I think what we knew we had something very unique.
0: Well, I guess there's that's really true because Mister Rogers' Neighborhood started in what year? Nineteen sixty. Nineteen sixty-eight.
1: Well, so, yes, it, it started in Canada. Then he brought it into Pittsburgh. It was on WTAE for a year, and right. then he moved over to the QED. So, so at he sixty-seven.
0: He was essentially. I mean, it wasn't the very beginning of of TV as we know it, but it was close to it. Right.
1: You're you're a little bit younger. Than I am, but I grew up with the Children's Corner in the 50s. Sure. Which was Fred Rogers and Joey K- Josie Carey well, on I, WQED. I remember Josie Carey. Okay, so Josie sure. was on air, Fred was behind the scenes. Doing all the puppets in the music. I
0: remember Ricky and Copper. Do you I, really? I remember Paul Shannon. Oh, yeah, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: great. And Hank Stoll.
0: And Hank Stoll. Of we're, course. We're, we're Popeye going and back. We're going back. The, yeah, we're, abs- we're going back. That's really going back. That's and wild. Most, most of the audience right now said, Who are these guys talking about? <laughs> and have gone out to get a drink of water. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the. the uh, point is is that
1: he was setting it up well before you got enrolled. oh much much before and I so got
0: you came into a rolling
1: came into, yeah absolutely i came into a very successful nationally known program at a and a, a company that was nationally known and really very much respected by people. so
0: how long had you known mr rogers how you'd met him in i, I met him in a, i met him in about
1: 73 74 so it was 11 it, years it, yeah it was for... about 10 or 11 years before i came to back to pittsburgh so
0: it wasn't it was he wasn't hiring you out of the blue no you had a relationship already. Had a
1: relationship. He knew what I was doing. You know, he knew my background in child development.
0: One thing that I know about the entertainment industry at large is that it really is not so much about what you know, but who you yeah. know. And so I think that that's a. a, a Case but, in point, but
1: isn't that life? It's all about relationships. It really, I mean, is. if I wouldn't have seen you in the street, I wouldn't be here today. Exactly. You know, we knew each other, we met each other. Exactly. And, and all of a sudden, we run into each other. It's all about relationships.
0: It really, it, well, it really is, and particularly in that industry, yep. I I know that in in Los Angeles and Hollywood or New York, it's really that connection to other Absolutely. people. Absolutely, and I'm sure it's the same way for for you all. Although, curiously enough, you. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood wasn't in, wasn't working out of the big markets. So right. You're working in a little bit isolated way by being here in Pittsburgh.
1: Yeah, in, in, in many ways, I think that was good. Oh, in, I think in, it was in a retrospect. big plus. And it would it was funny when you when you would say that uh, you say that when when Fred would be getting off a plane in Pittsburgh, they would say, "How long are you going to be in Pittsburgh?" Because they didn't think you know. he'd say, "Well, I live and work here." <laughs> you do, you know. You're not Hollywood. You say, "No, no, we're Pittsburgh."
0: Were you Were you totally familiar with his work prior to all that? Very much so. Okay, so yeah. it wasn't it wasn't a revelation to you that he was doing this kind of
1: work. Oh no, not at all. I mean, I, I, again. Having studied child development and being interested in quality for children, you know, he really did set the standard. I think that's accurate. So we we studied Fred and we we looked at what Fred did. Mm-hmm. And Pittsburgh has quite a reputation in early childhood. If, if you take a look at, I mentioned Margaret McFarland at, at the Arsenal Family and Children's Center, which was part of the University of Pittsburgh. Right. She worked with Ben Spock, who wrote Baby and Child Care, and sure. Eric Erickson, who wrote Childhood and Society. So... The biggest and the best were in Pittsburgh. Benjamin the Spock was in Pittsburgh? He worked at the University of Pittsburgh. I
0: did not know that.
1: Yeah. In fact, he did a lot of his, uh, his research here, as did Eric Erickson.
0: How interesting. I, yeah. I don't know why I didn't know that, but yeah. I didn't know yeah. that.
1: Oh, yeah. He, um, he and Margaret were very The great story is that they would do a lot of observation at the Arsenal Family and Children's Center, which was in the Arsenal at Lawrenceville. Right. It was the old Navy Arsenal. They took an old home, what was for two Navy officers, you know, took the middle out, created a house, put in preschool classrooms. They had offices. And they would observe children and talk during the day. And in the afternoon when they would be going back to the university, they would stop at the pleasure bar in Bloomfield. <laughs> and Margaret would tell the story that Eric and Ben would have scotch, should have sherry, and they would talk more about kids.
0: Huh, interesting. Did did I, 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 I'm off topic a little sure, bit, no, but no. I'm just curious. You brought it up. Did Dr. Spock and Mr. Rogers know one another?
1: They had met. They had met. They had met, and Fred had seen him um, in Cleveland, and they were both talking about Margaret. You know, about because both of them had benefited from her knowledge. Wow! In child development. That's <laughs> pretty amazing. That
0: that is that's very heady when you think about it, because those very. those are and two legends in children's very much so
1: development. And Eric Erickson, in the psychoanalytic field, when they did a 2050 anniversary for Fred being on children's television, Erickson came back to speak, which was really. Something to have him come to Pittsburgh because at that time he was pretty old and not doing much traveling.
0: Mm. All right, so you worked with uh, Fred Rogers for how many years then? About 35. 35 years. Just a few. Yeah, just a few. All right, so I'm curious, speak to one or two or three things that you learned from him about the world, about TV, about children. Tell us what you learned from him.
1: Well, what I. What I learned for i 'll give you three that that one of which i 'm still working on to this day uh, hard one is the importance of patience. Fred was an incredibly patient human being was there anybody ever more patient uh, it, it a, it's a it 's a great comment it 's funny because I was watching with my two year old grandson today daniel tiger in in one of the little songs that uh, Angela developed is when you feel so mad you run a roar take a deep breath and count to four mm. one two three four and I use that every time I'm in the car I, you know it just you, you got to remember to take the deep breath and so the patience I mean to, to realize that not everybody is going to be able to go at the same pace as you or that you know people aren't doing things just to get to you I mean just be patient so patience is a big thing
0: was was he did he you ever see him become impatient
1: um yeah, I'm into studio. If 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 things, if he didn't feel people were giving it their all and mm-hmm. giving it their best, mm-hmm. you would see him get into a, a zone where you know this is important. I mean that that's about as much as he would push it. This is really important. We have to get this done correctly. So yes, I mean his work. Was very very central to who so he I was. So I can't
0: picture him ever yelling he at would anybody. Would not
1: yell. I've never heard him yell. But, I mean, he, he, but would, he'd he? would become pointed? He would come pointed and say, "Look, let's get this right. You know, let's let's clear the studio of uh, and I only have the people in here we need to have, and let's get this done and let's do it right."
0: So he 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 knew how to take charge of the room. Uh
1: Did he ever? I mean, it was it was as all the directors would say. You know, this is not. Mr. Eisler's neighborhood, this is Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. We know whose neighborhood it is.
0: <laughs> well, I think that that would be accurate. Yeah, it would be yeah. pretty hard to, to, to beat him back on that. Right. But it's very interesting that he practiced what he preached. He did.
1: The other thing, one of the other things is to listen. And Fred listened. And, again, I find myself, um, if we would be eating somewhere in mm-hmm. a restaurant, I may not be focusing on you 100%. You know, you're looking around and Fred focused on you 100%. He listened to you. What he was interested in at the time is what you had to say, not everybody else.
0: Well, as this recent movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, came out, I read many articles about, about Mr. Rogers mm-hmm. and, of course, the movie and so on. But one of the, you're talking about one of the things that I saw repeatedly is that he had the ability, which I think very few people have, to, to make the entire world about you, right. you the listener, and right. that apparently he was incredibly gifted. At, as someone would ask him a question about him, he would turn around and make it about them
1: always we i used to call that his verbal karate verbal karate because you would meet him and right away he would be interested in how steve got to be who he is today mm-hmm. and why you're doing things the way you're doing them mm. and he especially loved to have those conversations with younger people who were sure. in school well, makes and really learning so he focused on the person all the time and mm-hmm. it, it Amazing to me. I mean, just as an example, when in, you know what book signings are like. Sure. I mean, sure. you've been through this. Of course. And you're, you know, you go into a bookstore and they, they have a they have a quota for you to sign every hour, and Fred would give him an hour, and you know, 15 minutes into it, that, that people would come up and say, you know, he's got to move on and i'm sorry he's not going to do it he's not going <laughs> to you know he's somebody would come up and say you made a difference in my life and then the conversation would start
0: would, would he hang around much longer than oh yeah schedule? he would
1: he would he, he would he very uh one of the things i did a lot in traveling with him was try to keep him moving um you know and you had to apologize to people and say you know he has a schedule he has to get here he has to get there but you always had to pull him away. You
0: you were responsible for taking him around then.
1: David Newell, who was head of PR, and well, I both Dave, did it. David's been on the David's show. David's been on the show, but but I, you know, I I really was in a sense the no person. Let's just keep moving.
0: So so just for the audience's sake, who may be listening to this and had not heard the David Newell episode, David Newell played Mr. Mr. McFeely, McFeely yeah, for he was however fifty forever. years. Yeah, no, he, he was still does for, yes, play Mr. Still, McFeely.
1: Still still does Mr. McFeely. Yes, he does.
0: <laughs> and and one of. I mean, I can't imagine a nicer person uh, than than David. Newell. David
1: doesn't have a bad bone in his Not body. Not exactly I mean, he right. He's really one kind human being. So I mean,
0: that was that had to have been completely symbiotic between yeah, the two it of was. them, because if he'd come in and been an unpleasant person, then he probably wouldn't have been it, it, Mr. McFeely for it, long. Right,
1: and David was the same way. When David was was doing an appearance as Mr. McFeely, he would spend hours. Mm-hmm. And he would be there until the last person left.
0: Do you think that's David or do you think he learned that from Mr. Rogers? I
1: think a lot of that is David, but I think a lot of that was learned from Fred and being with Fred over the years.
0: So he was everything that we saw on camera, off camera.
1: As we would say, what you see is what you got. There that, was no difference between Fred Rogers and Mr. Rogers or Mr. Rogers and Fred Rogers. And
0: he was curious he was, about everything.
1: He was curious about every possible thing that went on in life.
0: Well, that was the, I mean, that's the hallmark of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood is how many things he was, you know, exploring.
1: Of, obviously. And, and again, here's, it, I love how you just said it, exploring, because people would say, I love when you go to the factories to, to see how things are made. And mm-hmm. Fred would always say, I'm glad you'd like to see how people make things. Because <laughs> we get back to the relationship, you get back to people. So it's people who are making those things, and he would always emphasize that.
0: I, I think you're, you're hitting on maybe the singular major lesson of Mr. Rogers, which is it's never about you. It's about everyone else.
1: All right, and here's, here's, here's number three. Okay. He never used a personal pronoun.
0: Never used
1: I people, or me? People would say, I, I love your program, and he would always say, I'm glad you can use our work. wow. I, it was amazing to me. It was the, the, the team approach, the people in his life were what was central. And without them, he couldn't do the work he did.
0: That's amazing.
1: And he remained close. I mean, if you saw the documentary in, in you know, Nikki Tallow, who was, you know, on, on the stage, crew, uh, Jimmy Siech, Frank Werninski, these people were as important to Fred as anybody else in his life.
0: They were his family.
1: They were his family. They were, as as Joanne said, they were his playmates.
0: His playmates. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, I I have to assume that he had an inordinately playful mind.
1: Oh, very, very.
0: That he, he, I don't want to say, it 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 wasn't.
1: Love the way you said that. He was. He did, he liked to play.
0: And he was not childish. He was
1: childlike. Like, very childlike. Major difference. Not childish, childlike.
0: Totally different. Right. I talk that, about that in classes that I teach. There's a big difference. Absolutely. For instance, right now I'm teaching a course on TV animation writing, mm-hmm. uh, and I say you, you want to approach subjects for young children in a childlike way, not yeah. in a childish way.
1: Right. And as adults, we should remain childlike, not childish. Well, th- right. I th-
0: there are all too many adults, I believe, who lose whatever they had as a child, and I, I think it's, it's, a, it's sorrowful that it they is. lose it.
1: It is. I mean, what you lose is you lose your sense of wonder, you lose your sense of imagination, you lose your sense of creativity, and when you're teaching and especially in a course on animation, children's animation, that's what it's all about.
0: It's exactly
1: I mean, what you got to let about. your mind go.
0: Well, one of the things that I do teach that obviously he would totally back is that I I never talk down to anyone in a script that I've written. I'm always Amazing. writing it for my philosophy was always to write it for me and what I would enjoy and just take the Adult parts of it so that it's that's not in there. And you don't talk about adult topics. You don't talk about, in right. a child's uh, animation, you're not going to talk about uh, high finance on Wall Street. That's just not likely to be exactly. a topic you bring up. Exactly. But you can talk about what it's like not to have yeah. money.
1: Yep. Right? Yeah. You know, it, 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 the proof of what you're saying to me is when people would say to me, I couldn't stand a neighborhood until I had kids. I never understood it well it's you know so they would see it they wouldn 't see they wouldn see it as an adult, sure, and they once they saw it through the eyes of a child, right, it totally made sense to them
0: yeah because as as an adult um, I mean Mr. Rogers was kind of talking on a level that was a that was that most adults would be impatient with, but a kid would be totally patient oh,
1: with totally it. i i can 't believe i mean I, again, I want to go back to my grandson because you know, my grand—my granddaughter is five, but they, they now watch Mr. Rogers. They stream Mr. Rogers. <laughs> so it's not, or a lot of people said, well, you know, it's a program of the 70s, it's a program of the 60s. Children today still want something that they can understand and appreciate and like. And you don't have to have a lot of fast movement and a lot of action.
0: Well, here's the curious thing about children. There are always going to be children
1: always and you and got
0: it. and one of the beauty parts of of writing for, or producing for children is your audience keeps turning over every few years and it's this, you've got a whole brand new batch of people of eyeballs that are will appreciate your right. work
1: absolutely you know
0: it doesn't really grow old exactly and my i have to imagine that that mr rogers neighborhood has not grown old at all
1: it really hasn't i mean what what is what is different um on some of the how people how people make things, a lot of things today may be animated. Uh, there may be bigger machines, but people are still central to getting those things to work and getting the final product out the door. But absolutely, you know, it, it, we we laugh every once in a while when we see something because again, if it was produced in the late '60s, yes, in black and white. It's a little bit different today.
0: Well, that's true. The, the, the imagery has a different patina exactly. to it. Exactly. Exactly. It just has a, and of course, you're seeing a person age over time right. too. So oh, if you're yeah. seeing the beginning oh, of yeah. Mr. Rogers' career and the end of his career, he looks like Mr. Rogers only he's aged.
1: Right. That's true.
0: And 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 I think that to children, children don't know the difference in terms of if you've aged or not. They just know adult, father, right. grandfather, right. that sort of thing. Right.
1: They see adult. You're um, right.
0: So, so I, I guess what you're saying is that the real secret is about listening and putting the emphasis on the other.
1: It is, always. And do,
0: you do that when you teach. Do you know... Well, you do have to do it right. when you teach. Do you know that that's really the same principle that all actors work with? That when they're acting, the the one thing that all great actors do is they once they concentrate on the other characters they take themselves out of the equation, and that frees them up to be loose and limber. It's amazing. And so uh, it's the same principle in action that you're talking about. And yes, as a teacher. So we're sitting here today. It's whether I'm doing a good job or not, someone else would have to tell me. But my job today is to listen to you, to comment, to feedback, and so on. But I'm trying hard to listen. Right. And that requires, see, and that's the, the other thing. That he was really good at, Mr. Rogers. He didn't just... There's a difference between hearing and listening.
1: Totally. Every, Absolutely.
0: People with, uh, you know, good auditory systems can hear, but they don't always listen. That's right. It requires activity.
1: Yeah, you do. And it, it requires concentration. It, you exactly have to what focus. it focus,
0: Because if you don't, you're, you're, you're zoned out. You're paying exactly. attention you're to paying something no, else. Exactly. You're
1: not paying attention to anybody.
0: Okay. So let's talk about some other things other than Mr. Rogers himself, mm-hmm. but in terms of, of working the product... Sure, because after all, you were making a product, right? Right. Um, So, what would you say? What advice would you give to up-and-coming creators that would help them to more successfully sell their shows?
1: Well, you know, this this is a. I want to get. What I always when I people say you know I have an idea for a program right and it's great and people should have ideas. I have passion to do this. That's great. You should have that. I think where you have to be realistic is, how are you going to get this before the public? I mean, I, I used to say to people, do you have a broadcast slot? That would always be my, you know, do you have somebody who's going to broadcast this? Because we were thinking about a very linear television delivery system. Right. Today, the delivery systems are pretty wide open.
0: Very different.
1: And have you thought about all the different ways you might be able to get this out, to get some attention and get some recognition for what you're doing
0: and it's harder today
1: it is harder much harder to get on broadcast television for sure and again even even a a broadcast when amazon's trying to get into you know broadcasting they cut back drastically on children's Mm -hmm. i mean there's not a lot of money in children's media these days right disney is the premier but even nickelodeon is having issues you know, can HBO get into it? It, It's always an issue. So my point is, think about the number of ways you might be able to get this before the eyes of individuals who will start talking about the program and will give the program some recognition, Mm -hmm. however that may be. I'm always amazed at numbers on YouTube. But, you know, again, it, it shouldn't be just one thing. It shouldn't be just, well, I want to go to Nickelodeon or I want to go to Amazon or I want to go to Hulu. I think you have to think very broadly, and I think that you have to be very consistent uh, and not come up with an idea and then start to chop it up and reformat it because somebody may say something to you. If you really believe in it, try to keep it your program.
0: And you need to know the markets too. PBS is a very different market than Nickelodeon.
1: Very and 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 again, I just want to say from the intellectual property point of view, the markets are very very different too. And by that, about what you what you're going to do for hire versus what you may own. Right. I mean, there are lots of issues. But to get back to your question about, you know, what advice do you give people? Really work on what you want to do. Get it to the point that this is exactly what you want to do.
0: It should be your and it should be your passion,
1: your passion, and then start to follow it through. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And as you said, and I think it's it's so true, it's even more difficult today.
0: Well, the, the, the when you were beginning in, in TV, there were basically four outlets. That's right. ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS. Right. That was really basically think it. Think about that. And yeah. cable was just starting to come on at that time in the, in the mid-'80s, right? Right. Prior to that, you go back 10 years before that, there wasn't really any kind of cable market other than they were rerunning what was – out there on the on the broadcast. Network.
1: Exactly. And what what was cable developed for? Cable was developed and a lot of it was done in Pennsylvania to get the signal over the mountains. Exactly I mean, right. You know, you know we did, we didn't have 500 channels.
0: Exactly and right.
1: There was a study done years ago. It was for rural neighborhoods. It was well, there was a there was a study. I, you know this it's fascinating when you go back into especially in Pennsylvania in the history of cable television because the most recognized face by preschool children in the early '70s, late '60s, early '70s was Lucille Ball, <laughs> because have, of all the reruns. Sure, there was no new content; they were rerunning whatever was available. Sure, that makes sense. So today, it's there's there's so much out there, uh, and so, even even with PBS, I mean, PBS now has a 24-hour service. It, sure,
0: and that's they all have to have that.
1: Absolutely, I mean, and plus it, digital.
0: And plus all of the internet and all the streaming and YouTube and everything else that's out there. There's an enormous uh, uh, fight in the uh, business for eyeballs. Right. How can we get people to watch us? Me, 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 me. So how do you take a gentle program like a Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood or or Peg and Cat, how do you take a gentle program that's not screaming at people and get people to come to it?
1: Well, that's where we're lucky to be working with PBS and to have a service in this country like PBS mm-hmm. that is willing to try things that are new and try things that are different. Odd Squad, which is a live action program mm-hmm. um, that was developed by two individuals here and you know produced in Canada. I mean, that that was a real... Risk, but live action hit. I mean, it became a hit. Kids like to see kids.
0: I guess that's what it boils down to. Is kids would like to see kids? kids yeah. And and Daniel Tiger is a kid, right? Daniel Tiger's not an adult. No. Uh, and I think that that's and it's not. It's so different from a lot of the other fare that's out there. Right. It's not violent. It's. It's
1: not, and it it really. I mean, it it's. Mother told me last week, and I've heard this a lot, but it was really interesting because I had an extended conversation with her. You know, I've learned to be a better parent by watching it. And it's those messages that are geared to children, but just like when you feel so mad you want to roar. Right. I mean, that's that's a message for every adult.
0: Oh, sure it is.
1: I mean, that, that is a, Fred's way of saying it, it was the song, when you feel so mad you, uh, what do you do when you feel so mad you want to bite? Right. I mean, so, you know, it was repurposed to when you feel so mad you want to roar. Uh, you know, try something different. Um, going to the bathroom. All those, all those child development little lessons that mm-hmm. are incorporated in every single neighborhood program are very effective for parents in terms of messaging.
0: I think that's the beauty part of it. It works on both levels. It does.
1: It and, really does. And I think
0: if it didn't, a lot of parents would pay no attention to it. That's true. But instead they do. Right. And I think that that's the magic of the whole Fred Rogers right. thing is that, is that both adults and children are able to enjoy it on some level. But like you say, it takes adults a little while to figure it out and best if they have kids. Exactly. Exactly. So, all right, let's talk about Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood for a moment because that's been inordinately successful. That's been a very successful Mm -hmm. enterprise. Talk about how that came to be and how you developed it.
1: Well, there was a point in time where the the, the board of the company, um, we decided that we wanted to get back into children's television. And we decided that, um, you know, the format for Mr. Rogers was was a format for one person. And it was not a format that you, if you didn't have a Fred Rogers type of personality of fred rogers with a talent to do write the music write the scripts do the puppeteering do the on-air uh you You, know be the facilitator you couldn't you you, couldn't you could not
0: franchise that show at all there were no sequels to that show. right
1: so we thought we thought about animation and we then decided to bring somebody in and we you know did a nationwide search and brought in kevin morrison
0: How did you do that search? Did you do it through Headhunters? Did you do it through... We did
1: it through a company here in Pittsburgh. Okay. uh, And um, brought Kevin in and had animation experience, had worked in children's television Mm -hmm. for a long period of time, came from L.A. um, And he really was the, you know, he was the person that we relied on and his advice. We had known Angela. Angela Santamara had come to Pittsburgh, had met Fred on a number of occasions we seriously looked at three different programs, and PBS and we like Daniel Tiger the best, and that's the one we ran with.
0: Were there other programs that came to you that were mm-hmm. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood themed or based?
1: No, this is the only one that we really based on, on, on Mr. Rogers' On a, Rogers no, a Neighborhood. known Mr. Rogers' a known character. known Mr. Rogers' character. Sure. We, yeah, we did it on a known Mr. Rogers' character, and it's really the second generation. Daniel is Daniel the original Daniel Tiger's son. So Dad Tiger would have been Daniel Tiger on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Got it. So the characters were all either nieces, nephews, sons, daughters of. And um, there was no adult at all, and they were 11-minute minute segments with you know interstitial something in the in the middle of it, an opening and a closing. Um, <clears throat> it so happened that the person assigned from PBS to work with us was Paul Siefkin, who we then hired. Uh, to come in to run a company, and he now is the president and CEO of Fred Rogers Productions.
0: And, and that's how it works. That's
1: how it works. Uh, I mean, he was an incredibly gifted person, very smart, very knowledgeable about children's program, and worked at Cartoon Network and PBS.
0: How how deeply were you involved in the development of the series itself, the show itself? I just, you know... I know you were not terribly yeah, into the creative end. No, anyway.
1: not even... It, it, just in talking, to make sure that the philosophy of Fred... Was consistent Mm -hmm. because it really was based on his work. No question. So, um, uh, people at at the company, Margie Whitmer, who was a producer of The Neighborhood, had a Sheriff and who had been with Fred for many, many years, Kathy Droz, people really sat down and talked with Angela and worked with Angela. A lot of script reviewing. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, working with uh, Roberta Schomburg, who Is now uh, the executive director of the Rogers Centre in Latrobe as a child development person, really bringing in people who knew Fred's philosophy, who understood child development, and understood what he stood for in terms of children's programming. So it is it is very much in tune with Fred's work. So there were definitely Daniel Tiger,
0: right? And so there so there definitely were um, childhood development specialists that were consultants or working on the show. Absolutely. and and I don't think you could have done it any other way. No, you,
1: I don't think so either.
0: Because I, I, 25 years I wrote cartoons in Hollywood. And right. believe me, there was nobody telling us from a child development standpoint what to do on 98% of what right. I worked on. And it was kind of free reign. And frankly, mo- most of my uh, working life was working on uh, um, teenage boy, late uh, late before their tens, uh, so they were kind of violent, and they were action-packed, and I worked on shows like Batman and X-Men, and they were violent shows. They were nothing like what you would see on...
1: For a preschool child. For a
0: preschool child. Right, right. Um, And so, all right, so how long did it take to develop that show before you were ready to say, hey, we have a show here that, uh, you know, it's good to go on TV?
1: I would say probably... Well, we had, we had talked with Angela on and off. I mean, you know, we had developed a relationship with her. So it was one of the three that we looked at. <clears throat> but I would say from the time they came up with a pilot uh, and really worked at PBS Fast Tracked it. I mean, they wanted it. They They liked the concept. They liked the Bible. They liked what they saw. It was probably about Three years until you know, it finally so came out. So I want
0: the listeners to pay attention to what Bill yeah. just said because I think it's going to surprise many
1: people who don't know. It doesn't happen overnight. When you say
0: they fast-tracked it, people will think, oh, they did it in about three months. No. 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 Try three years.
1: Yeah. It's a lot of work.
0: It's a lot of work. And there's and there's a lot of, of work that goes into the back and forth of, should we do it this way or that way? Should we emphasize this or that? And there's a lot of that that goes on, and some of it is guesswork and some of it is better known.
1: Sure, and you know this. I mean, you're teaching this, but even looking for animators. <laughs> we ended sure. up working with Nine Story in Toronto. I mean, a lot of the animation is done in Canada these days. Indeed. Uh, and... We took a look at a couple companies. I mean, it wasn't you just go someplace. I mean, you really have to, you have to feel comfortable with everybody you're working with. Collaborations are incredibly important to the success of a program. So glad you brought that up. But they are so tough. I oh. would always say when we're getting into a collaboration, remember, this is going to be tough work. It is tough work. You've got to accept that. I would put it a little bit more graphically, but I can't say that on the air. I mean, I don't. Well, and, and you wouldn't say it on the air, but the truth is this show has an <laughs> adult rate again. You could if you wanted you know, to. But, but once it happens and it's successful like Daniel Tiger, right. it's a great story. Sure. But it, there's a lot of give and take.
0: Oh, you don't know whether it's going to succeed before you put it up on the air. No you, idea. You can guess all day long and you no can be idea. 100% sure it's going to succeed and the thing will flop. That's just the nature of the entertainment industry exactly. at large
1: but if you get people that you want to work with and that you trust and trust is a big factor and you're open and you're honest you can produce something of value and and Daniel was a real example of that
0: all right for you, i'm going to ask you a question i ask a lot of guests that i is a very difficult question mm-hmm. for you what makes a good story good why is this, why is this story good and this one's rejected
1: you know it, it, it... I should be asking you that question. You you're the person that spent their life writing.
0: I've I've heard many answers. Well, I, you know what
1: what makes a good story a good a good story? It does It's a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's like going back and and reading a poem. Two people read a poem and they they interpret it differently, right? Two uh, people see something sure. they interpret it differently. You know, Fred used to say that that space between the viewers' eyes and the television screen is is hallowed ground because that's where people are interpreting what they see, mm-hmm. and they see it differently. I think what makes a story good is a very, very personal thing and and it it does it really make you think, make you imagine, make you feel like you're part of it? Does it draw you in? It has to. And if it doesn't, it's not a good story. Okay. So the way that that works, and I think Fred Rogers was
0: maybe the supreme example of it, you must, as an author, as a creator, you must engender empathy with that protagonist, that lead character. And I think there was probably no one who engendered empathy with what he was doing more than Fred did. Right and, and I, I hesitate to say Fred because I didn't know him and it feels Please disrespectful. Use it. But but Mr. Rogers, because yeah. that's how I grew up knowing Mr. Rogers. I, I think that it's, I think that you hit on it and that it it, it has to do with dr- dragging the viewer on a personal level into your show. Yeah. And if you don't, and, okay, so so was that part of the conversation in any way on Daniel
1: Tiger? No, we we knew that we're we're Daniel Tiger. We're, I think the brilliance of Daniel Tiger was going to the next generation, so that you're dealing with adults, tigers, you know, adult characters, right. uh, with a Mr. McFeely, with a, a Baker Acre, uh, with a Music Man Stan, with, with Lady Elaine, and then La- Lady Elena, her daughter... Uh, the brilliance there was bringing in more than one generation, mm-hmm. as you could do with a neighborhood. But if you would have just done Daniel Tiger, it would have been a single generation.
0: If you, the show had just been that's called right. Daniel, Daniel Tiger,
1: Tiger. and he only used Daniel, this idea of Angela's concept was let's let's go to the next generation.
0: Well, that's very Fred-like.
1: It is very Fred-like. It I really
0: mean, is. You're, you're going to all these different entities and characters and
1: sure and then then baby margaret comes along daniel's little sister who's Mm -hmm. named after margaret mcfarland is very fred light because all the characters in the neighborhood were named after people fred knew daniel tiger was named after dorothy daniel who was the first general manager of wqed
0: interesting i did not know that (laughs) he he liked to name things i mean mr mcfeely comes from his his grandfather his his family right his grandfather
1: uh queen sarah is sarah joanne bird rogers his wife (laughs) <laughs> so there was a lot of connection,
0: with, well,
1: with the characters. It,
0: clearly, he it was very personal for him.
1: Incredibly personal.
0: Yeah, I mean, probably there's lots of things that nobody ever really knew what he was truly thinking because it was reminding him of one thing or another,
1: which he picked up in talking with people. I would always, so I would always say that you know he would be talking to people, and um, a character would come or a story would come back in. Mm-hmm. It was his meeting of Francois Clemens. I mean, that became a you know when he met Francois as a student, he said, "I think you should be on the neighborhood. And It'd be good to have you as a policeman." And Francois talks about it. You know, I was a, I was a young student, and he you know an African American. He wanted me to be a policeman. You know, that was just unheard of. <laughs> Not in those days, that was unheard and, and, of. But when you think about it, it it, it he really brought his his life how he saw life and the people in his life to life mm-hmm. on that screen via mr rogers neighborhood mm.
0: very very interesting what would you say when you were in developing the show cuz after all this show this show story beat is about the process right. of various things uh, what would you say were the the biggest or maybe the biggest hurdle that you had to overcome? Was it raising the financing? Was it uh, selling the show to, to To getting PBS totally on board? What was the biggest hurdle? Well, and how did you overcome it?
1: Y- you know, they, it, it's really interesting. They, once you have what I would call the broadcast slot, once PBS came on board, right. this community in the city of Pittsburgh, the region, has an incredibly generous foundation base. And the foundations really came forward and it was um it was not easy but we were really supported by the foundations here in Pittsburgh so the
0: so the the uh development of money the the, right. the finding and of production money was a big hurdle
1: it's it's absolutely it's a big and hurdle it because is, it's it? it's again the neighborhood was you know a fairly inexpensive half hour compared to a half hour of animation And in, you know, talking about the broadcast standards that you need to have, Um, we were also fortunate because we were able to get underwriting support from uh, Rite Aid Corporation, the Bezos Foundation. You know, so people began to see the value of the program and, and underwriting came along and was very, very helpful also. Well,
0: without it, you have really next to nothing, nothing. unless you're independently right. wealthy. Exactly. You know? uh, obviously, there are humans in the world that could afford to fund a whole show like that, but it, they're not—they're not common. And no, it's hard to not. get them to part with their money, too.
1: No, it's tough. I mean, it, it is very difficult because it is—it's it, an expensive endeavor, and when you're talking about doing forty half hours, mm-hmm. that is a lot of money. All right,
0: so let's then talk about it. You clearly must be pretty good at pitching in a way. Whether it's the show itself or pitching the Fred Rogers productions or company, whatever your what is your what is your philosophy on pitching or selling or however you want to call it?
1: Well, it, it, let me be really honest about this: pitching a Mister Rogers brand is not that difficult, <laughs> especially today. I mean, this is not we were we were not starting from scratch. That's we true. had a we had a known quantity. Um, it's
0: like when I worked at Disney and they were producing. Uh, various duck sh- shows. They were right. producing Winnie the Pooh. It's not a tough sell.
1: No, not at all. I mean, if you do Disney, you can do Disney on Ice. You can do Disney on roller skates. Mm, yes. You can do D- D- Disney on big trucks. I mean, you can do Disney on anything.
0: Was there ever a time when Fred Rogers didn't wasn't as pa- powerful a draw?
1: Well, I, 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 here was it. Here's where one of the little differences come in. Fred Rogers never was in it for the money. Mm-hmm. I mean, he saw it as ministry. Mm -hmm. so he was not interested in licensing or making money right with daniel you have to put a whole licensing program together because Mm -hmm. what is called the back end really supports the continuation of the program and the producing of the program right so any toys any books you know anything like that is important too i mean it is a total package tax credits i mean what goes into it it's so many financing options And again, having somebody like Kevin Morrison, who had been in the business and really understood long-term financing issues and short-term financing issues, um, really, really helped us. But the bulk of the funds to support Daniel Tiger's neighborhood came from the city of Pittsburgh and a foundation base. PBS puts forth money, too.
0: But but they have a ten- – as my understanding is, PBS has a tendency to not put anywhere near as much money in as the no, bigger entities. No,
1: no. I mean, the difference between PBS and the other entities is PBS puts money in it and you own it. The other ones put a lot more money in it, but they own it.
0: But they own it. Right. Sure. Well uh, – um, Uh, So PBS doesn't have any ownership at all? They have a percentage
1: of of, receipts and a back end, but they don't have ownership. No No, no copyright. copyright. The copyright belongs totally to Fred Rogers Productions. Isn't that great? It is, because it's a non-profit and it's able to keep the productions going.
0: And and I'm so happy to hear you say that most of the money for the show came out of Pittsburgh. I think that's... It really did. That says a lot
1: about Pittsburgh. And even even the new programs uh, that are being produced, uh, the foundations have realized that... Um, fred rogers productions has done a lot for this city Uh, that is an uncontested truth and so it's great to have that kind of support you can't minimize it
0: it is all right so we've been talking for Well, we're heading toward an hour um last two questions uh you've obviously been doing this quite some time you're now retired but you worked on tv and so on for at least 35 years or more um, in all your experiences, and maybe particular with with Mister Rogers, can you relate to us a funny, quirky, offbeat, weird, strange story that's just you know delightful to hear?
1: Yeah, I, I about Fred. It can be about Fred or anything at
0: all. Uh, it, Pre- this, It'd be great to hear something about Fred.
1: Well, this, this is this is Joanne Rogers' favorite story about Fred, and she tells it far better than I tell it. But Fred, when when Fred was in the neighborhood, he wore a regular necktie. Okay. In real life, he wore a bow tie, really? self-tied. Yeah, anytime I had to go to a formal thing, I had to go to, over to his house to have him tie my necktie. I could never <laughs> tie a bow tie. Fred <laughs> could do it without even looking in a mirror. And one day he was getting on an airplane, and he's walking up the ramp, and he sees the flight attendant smiling. And he gets right up to the woman, and the woman says, I just love your popcorn. <laughs> and he said, "I love popcorn too." <laughs> and sits down. And she comes back after the plane <laughs> takes off and she said, "I am so sorry." And he said, "Don't be." Now again, this is a generational thing because a lot of young people do not know who Orville Redenbacher Orville was Redenbacher. when he did his own program. Sure. So we called Fred Orville for about 6 months <laughs> after that. But he had a great sense of humor. You know, he did not, he did not, when she said, I love your popcorn, he didn't say, you know, I'm not Orville. Well... he just, I like popcorn, too, and sat down.
0: When you're, when you're essentially egoless, yeah, exactly. which he was, it's pretty easy to laugh at yourself. You know, you're not going to get all caught up in it.
1: There's another one where someday he was at a, at a function, and somebody kept calling him Mr. Ed, and he said, I can't believe they think I'm a horse. And the guy said, was with him said, yeah, but at least it's a talking horse. <laughs> I mean, you know, Fred did have a tremendous sense of humor. I mean, he really did. And he could laugh at himself, which was great. And he and Joanne had—they uh, had a whole language of the, the, their their own, and their 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 senses of humor were just brilliant. So, <laughs> you know, I could tell a lot of Fred, Fred Rogers stories.
0: It just occurred to me—there's a question I need to ask you sure. from the, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Right. Did you actually drive him out to meet with Tom Junot, who was played by—you know, made I, into the character yeah, of Lloyd?
1: I'll tell you the exact setup, because Tom Junot and I today are friends. We would consider ourselves friends, because mm-hmm. we talk—we talk I talk probably— you know, during the filming, we were talking probably once, twice a month. I just talked to him two weeks ago. I, I was not, you know, Fred would get these requests, and he always made up his own mind. I mean, you know, he would ask for advice. I was not hot on Tom Genot. He was a pretty, he had a pretty rough reputation mm-hmm. as a really rough investigative journalist mm-hmm. for Esquire magazine, and he had done a really pretty tough story on an on a actor and had just come out. And I just said, you know, I don't, I don't think it's necessary to do. You know, it's, it's a sidebar. It's 400 words. You know, it's Michael Jordan is going to be on the cover. I mean, you know, I just don't know why to do it. So he said, oh, I think I should do it. You know, um, it sounds like a, he sounds like a nice person. You know, am I talking to him? So on a Friday afternoon, he said, I just got off the phone with Tom. You know, he's coming in. Sunday and Joanne I told him Joanne and I would have dinner do you want to join us and I said absolutely not and he came in Monday morning and Fred would never never say I told you so he always said you never know Mm -hmm. you are going to love him he is really a decent human being and I just you know my eyes just glassed over it's Fred always being positive about everybody (laughs) and he came in and you know I I it wasn't rude but you know when he came back and he wanted to go to La Trobe yeah I drove I drove up with him. Huh. And uh
0: So that's uh, what we see in the movie is based on that reality. Uh,
1: it is. The the the, the difference is and the reason the the character is named Lloyd Vogel is for drama, which you understand again he, as he a has. writer and a storyteller. He never got into a fight with his father at his sister's wedding. There was never a sister's wedding. I mean that's you know, drama, you have to dramatized. build the drama in, right? Sure. But in terms of the relationship and the growth of the relationship that is all true, and they, I would say, of of anybody that ever interviewed Fred, and and Fred maintained relationships with a lot of people, he never retained the intense relationship that he had with Tom until really? the day he died. Really? Yeah. I mean, they really did correspond back and forth, huh. and Tom has gone back, really, um, you know, got into the hard drive of his old computer and everything else to really bring a lot of stuff back. He's not doing a book about it. He just really wanted to To relive a lot of those things.
0: Well, okay. So, again, I've gotten slightly off topic, but it's a really good topic. And that is almost all memorable, popular drama, comedy, it doesn't matter what it is, is requires being filled with nothing but conflict, which is what A Beautiful right. Day in the Neighborhood has, tons sure. of conflict. And yet, so the miracle of Mr. Rogers is he made 900 episodes of shows with almost no conflict right. in it. How do you do that? Because it's almost impossible. Yeah,
1: There were... Tads of conflict in it, you know. I mean, sure. you know, with with the king always being in, the Imperial Highness, yes. you know, always wanting to be in charge.
0: But it was never. But, but it's not conflict no, filled. No, no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> that was the, that was the beauty part yeah. of it. Okay, no, you're right. L- last question, Bill. Uh, we've been talking to. I, I've been talking to Bill Eisler. See, I use the the, the pronoun. I, I do it
1: all the time. We all do. I, I, I just. It's 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 amazing how how we uh, to think of ourselves. In the first position. In the first position. And Fred always thought of, it's always we.
0: Interesting. So uh, I've been talking to Bill Eisler here for close to an hour. And and last question of the day is, do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip that you can lend to those that are starting out in the entertainment industry, in TV, uh, that will hold them in good stead? Or perhaps it's someone that's in but trying to get to that next level. Either way.
1: i got to go back to what I said before, Steve. And I think this is really important. And, you know, just hearing you talk about teaching... You've got to feel passionate about what you're doing, Mm -hmm. and you've got to be willing to accept failure as part of the learning process. Oh, oh boy, do you. Learning is all about failure. We can't avoid failure. It happens. But what we have to do with that failure is turn it into the positive. Mm -hmm. And, again, none of this happens overnight for anybody. For
0: anybody, for sure. I don't care who they are. Nobody, nobody comes um, out of the womb a success.
1: No, and nobody, nobody becomes a competent human being in and by themselves. Oh no,
0: that's you know, so. This 100% process true.
1: of really being able to accept failure for what it is and make it, turn it into the positive, I think, is really something you have to do because you're going to meet people that are going to be really rude and potentially mean, and mm-hmm. you can't let that affect who you are, and what you're trying to do.
0: Well, because if it does, you're pretty much out you're of done. the business. You're done. And a lot of people uh, don't, aren't able to weather that, and so they fade away. Right. And only the people who, not only, but mostly the people who are able to weather those brickbats that come at you uh, are able to then succeed.
1: Right. And, and I just may just take a little bit of the movie. Uh, Micah and Noah, who were the two screenwriters, when we met them, They would tell you it was probably an eight-year process from the meeting to when they got the final script. That
0: makes sense. Uh,
1: Because originally we said no to the first script that they submitted. We weren't interested. They Mm -hmm. came back, spent some time in the archives, and they said, we have to do this movie. Then get us a script that we think is going to be workable and true to life. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, Mari Heller who's a director. This was her third film. Uh, Her second was, Can You Ever Forgive Me?, which uh, Kathleen Bates was nominated last year for an Academy Award. Again, in this business, no women directors were nominated this year for an Academy Award. It's
0: a bit of a puzzle. So
1: when you think about that, Mari is not sitting in New York moaning and groaning she's out doing more great stuff
0: 100 has to be
1: and you you got to be that way i mean she'll tell you you know i i don't i don't think a woman will be nominated this year i just don't think it's you know it just isn't going to happen but it's not going to slow the woman down she's still doing great work
0: and you and one must
1: yeah and and hanks is another good example i mean everybody looks at tom hanks at 63 great guy how many oscars how many nominations how many, you know, how many failures and how long did it take him to get there?
0: Long time. Well, you know? he hit it pretty young. He did. But, but, but he worked pretty hard. But he's worked very hard. Most successes are not overnight and most successes are filled fraught with failures of all kinds. And you kinds. just got to keep going. That is that is 100% true. If you see a beautiful day in the neighborhood, take a look at the Chinese restaurant scene <laughs> everybody because if you're paying attention in that scene are Mrs. Rogers Bill Eisler and David Newell. Right. Is there anybody else in that yeah. scene?
1: Margie Whitmer is in it and had a sheriff in it. It was all the people. They chose people. The producers chose people who worked directly with Fred who they thought should be in it. And well, That's pretty cool. It is really. And, it it, is
0: and that restaurant happens to be one door away from where we're recording this show right. in downtown Pittsburgh. And uh, it's a it's a phenomenal movie. And I urge everyone to check yeah. it out and to check out all of the the shows of the Fred Rogers Company, uh, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, uh, um, Peg and Cat and and uh, Odd. I'm sorry. I've, Odd Squad. Odd Squad. Right. Correct. Um,
1: soon. Soon. Uh, Donkey Hody will be in, I think, 2021. Oh, is that right? On PBS, which is another spinoff from the neighborhood, another character in the neighborhood coming to life. Really? Yeah. Fantastic. By, with, in cooperation with Spiffy Productions, who have a program called Nature, Nature Cat, who've really worked with the Henson people for years, so it's a puppet program. Oh, it's that'll great. Be, it's be great. That's really going to be good. That'll be fun. I, I do want to say something because you know, you're somebody who came back from L.A., and you think L.A., you think New York, you think Hollywood. Everybody who had anything to do with this film absolutely fell in love with the city of Pittsburgh. How could they not? Yeah, I mean, it, it is just, there are just great stories about this. And if I may tell one other that's also generational, but Tom Hanks, to set the stage, was born in Oakland, California, and he was a huge Oakland Raiders fan Mm -hmm. growing up. So he came in with his 22-year-old son, Truman, who was just graduating from college, uh, the first time to come in for hair, makeup, and sound. And he was staying at the Fairmont, and he gets on the elevator, and the bellman says, I hear you're making a movie about Mr. Rogers, and he said, we are. And he said, well, we take Mr. Rogers very seriously in this town. And Tom said, I just backed up to the back of the elevator and just didn't say anything. <laughs> and we get to the top floor and he says, Bellman says, but Mr. Hanks, we gave you the best suite in the hotel. We gave you the Franco Harris suite. He said, there was no way I was going to tell him I didn't like Franco oh. Harris.
0: <laughs> and his son says,
1: why, why wouldn't you like Franco Harris? He said, the Immaculate Reception. He said, what's the Immaculate Reception? I mean, it was a generational thing. But um, Franco did get to meet him. But, you know, Hanks loved his city, every bit about it. And he did come back after the massacre. He came back for the events. And, yes, I know. You know, they made sure that there was a showing in Squirrel Hill for the families and the responders.
0: Uh, and, and I think that that's testament to who he is. Exactly. And I, I don't mean, think, he
1: really identified with his city. And I
0: don't think that anyone could have ever found a better actor for that as both a human being and
1: an actor. It, it, it's, it, it's it's. It's frightening when you see him on come out on, for the first time.
0: Uh, just the first time I saw, I remember his first time, seeing a photograph of him sitting on the steps, the steps. of the trailer. That was the first photo they released. And I yeah, thought, holy great. moly, he really looks yeah. a lot like Mr. Rock. I mean, he's not. He's obviously Tom Hanks. No, he's not. But it's not he, an imitation. It's a portrayal, which correct. is
1: another thing about your business that is really amazing. It is what it's, I like. I think like, it's better.
0: It, I, it is what I, I like to call an impression. I, I, I like that. It's not an impersonation. It's, right. an, it's an impression. Yeah,
1: and it's much better. It is and, much better. Hey, listen, thanks. You do great work. It's great to have you back in this city, especially at Point Park.
0: Thank you. It has just been a true delight to have you in the studio. I greatly appreciate Bill Eisler being with us. See you on the
1: streets.
0: (laughs) And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden and may all your stories be unforgettable.